three meet again? In thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. That will be ever set of sin. Where the place? Upon the heath. There to meet with Macbeth. <laughs> Science episode 15, Cauldron Bubbles, the science of witchcraft. I'm your host, Heather. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Logan. <laughs> Logan. Um, no. We're, we're, we're done yeah. that part. Oh. Oh. <laughs> we're, okay. Well, uh, <clears throat> uh, I'm Logan. Uh, today we're going to break down uh, fact from fiction. The science from the sci-fi, or rather, in this case, the fairy tale. In honor of Halloween, we thought there'd be no better place to start than to start with witches and witchcraft. Double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn, cauldron bubble, you know the routine. But before we get into breaking down the science, we'll start with a little bit of background, a little history, and research. Because really, what are witches and witchcraft? To be clear, we're talking about like the magic side of things, not the religious side of things. So, I know there's quite a few folks out there who practice different um, pantheistic pagan religions, and that is not what we're talking about today. That is a whole nother topic. Um, we're talking just more about the magic side of witches. The magic and the mysticism yep. all rolled yep, yep. up together. So, uh, Heather. Yes, Logan? What exactly is a witch? Well, first of all, she floats if you throw her into water. Um, she should have a pointy nose. Does she weigh the same as a duck? Yes, she should weigh the same as a duck. Can you build a bridge um, out of her? You can. You should definitely test her out, even if she says she's not a witch. <laughs> um, but what is a witch? Well, a witch is typically a female human or non-human that is associated with magic in some way whether she practices it a lot of uh folks associate witch with like devil worship as well um that's not necessarily always the case it kind of depends on what lens you're looking at it through um and there is different definitions of witches historically this episode will focus more on a euro-american centric view on what witches are mm -hmm. there are certain places in the world and in certain religions where you can't call yourself a witch unless uh it has been passed down through your family or you have to be a particular practitioner of a particular religion um and so that's not necessarily something we're going to focus on because again that kind of borders on the religious side of things and not necessarily the magic um and not that witches don't uh, outside of like the European and American views don't practice magic uh, it is a different sort of lens that we're not necessarily looking through today but um, that is something we can look to for the future yeah so when when we look at witchcraft and, and witches through kind of this uh, western euro-american lens um, what you 
tend to see is a lot of history in uh, starting in Europe in the Middle Ages. Right. And a little bit with, uh, and, and I'm saying a little bit because time-wise it's a little comparatively uh, of like the Salem witch trials in the United States. The definition of a witch does, has changed over time. I would say, unfortunately, from like the 14th to 17th centuries in Europe, a witch is pretty much this of a similar definition. Historically, witches were typically women. Occasionally, they were men. And sometimes they were animals. Um, you know, if they had a familiar or an animal that was associated with a witch, um, they would also be considered a threat and probably killed or at least prosecuted. There's a lot of weird cases in Europe with that stuff. Um, but that's besides the point. And that is to say there's a lot of connotations with witch, but the most consistent thing throughout history is that it's typically prosecuted women who were sometimes healers. Uh, they had probably medicinal knowledge. Then they might have been more intelligent or some sort of threat to the local community. And in some cases, they just pissed people off and they decided to report them as witches. So that doesn't necessarily mean they were actually practicing magic at the time, which Logan will get into the history of witch hunts. Yeah, I think when we talk about witchcraft, there's kind of like three central uh, commonalities that we see. And those commonalities are that they're not always, but they are often men or <laughs> They're always, but Hashtag. not all men. <laughs> not all men. <laughs> not all men. Not all men are witches. Jeez. <laughs> uh, but all Christ. women are witches. Um, <laughs> Sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. Witches are, are typically women. Uh, not always, but, but most often. And they um, are usually, like, accused of some sort of, like, sexual crime against men, a.k.a. Of having human, like, female sexuality. Um, so you mean existing. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Great. Got it. Um, like you said, all women. Um, <laughs> there's also usually an accusation of um, some sort of organization, uh, whether they're meeting in covens or um, there's some sort of, like, tie-in with a, uh, like, a local group. Um, and then third, they're accused of having magical powers those magical powers are usually related to the health of other people whether harming or also healing like you know healing witches is a super common thing that you see in the middle ages um but even then it was still like well god didn't heal you this witch did and witchcraft is from the devil so therefore it's wrong and bad and even though the witch did good um, she's still evil, and also you should probably die, too, for letting a witch help you. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, unless you were royalty that had, like, a palace doctor who was doing, like, bloodletting and weird treatments to try and cure your ailments, which were uncurable at the time, um, if you weren't, like, a legit palace doctor, mm -hmm. uh, you were likely going to probably die from practicing witchcraft during this time period, or at the very least, uh, get prosecuted for it. Not everybody died but many people did in very horrific ways yeah i was seeing some numbers that were uh, saying in germany there were a couple of um cities where like upwards of 600 people died a year um, from being accused to witchcraft and so that was essentially um two deaths a day oh, except for sundays my god 
good. Yeah, and so... Oh, so like a good Christian, they don't murder on Sundays. Got it, got it, got it. Right, right. Um, but when we think about, like, witch hunts, um, they mainly happened between in, in Europe between the 14th century and the 17th century, right? Um, and during that time, we don't actually have a number, but uh, the one that I've seen kind of kicked around by a couple of different researchers is, you know, the in the millions of people were killed from being accused of witchcraft. Yeah, I could see that being a thing. Yeah, it has a big part to do with um, the both the Catholic and the Protestant churches. Um, so, so this is kind of fun. Um, and I'm no, not kind of fun. This is terrible. <laughs> so there's <laughs> fun in the really awful kind of way, as in like yeah. fun fact that's not so fun. Yeah. So. When when people think of witch hunts, they usually think of this kind of, like, mass hysteria, you know, we found a witch, raw, a burner at the stake. That wasn't typical. Um, what was typical was that they were um, organized campaigns. They were top- typically uh, initiated, financed, and executed by both the church and the state. Uh, and that comes back to the fact that, you know, witches were seen as organized um there's a lot of ideas around that maybe they led to uprisings in the peasantry um and so if you have witches that are helping heal your people and take care of them uh they don't need no shitty head of state telling them what to do um and obviously the church needs control this sounds like states versus federal rights (laughs) yeah it pretty much is um so a great way to kickstart something like a witch hunt is to have a reference guide. And in 1484, Reverends Kramer and Springer, cool. um, they were the beloved, and I'm putting beloved in quotes, sons of Pope Innocent VIII. Um, like, were they his actual, like, children or? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I think this is children in the eyes of God. Oh, you know, uh, okay. Well, I mean, there were popes yeah. having kids left and right up until a few, couple hundred years ago. The, so. See, beloved sons is in quotes, though, so I'm assuming that they weren't actually his bastard children. Oh, okay. Um, so probably just, like, people that were beloved by the church. Right. Okay. And and the reason that they were, uh, Kramer and Springer, um, is that they wrote the, uh, the Malleus Maleficarum, which uh, translates to Hammer of Witches. It is the, and I quote, unquestioned authority on how to conduct a witch hunt. Um, And so it was the book that was used pretty much by every judge and witch hunter. Yeah, because I guess everybody needs a witchcraft for dummies book. Yeah, I I mean, I have some of it here. Um, Not some of it. I have like a whole printed out thing. um, You printed the whole thing. It's not a short book. It's not that long. It's long for back then. <laughs> but, I mean, there's there's several different, like, there's the first part, and the first part has, uh, like, 28 questions. The second part has another, um, these questions are divided into chapters. These just sound like complicated BuzzFeed quizzes to find out. What kind of witch are you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like... Question number three in the first part is whether children can be generated by incubi and succubi. Um, question four is by which devils are the operations of incubus and succubus practiced? 
uh, five, what is the source of increased works of witchcraft? Wow, they like went to another level though. They're they involving incubi and in. succubi, like all in. Wow, but I, I think it's important to to really frame like what we know of witchcraft. So there's a book called Witches, Midwives, and Nurses: A History of Women Healers. It's by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English. Um, they pulled out this this great quote, um, which says. Unfortunately, the witch herself, poor and illiterate, did not leave us her story. It was recorded, like all history, by the educated elite, so that today we know the witch only through the eyes of her persecutors. So most of what we know historically about witches and witchcraft comes from documents like the Malice Malficarium uh, by the Catholic Church that was designed to kill them. Right. Um, And so kind of working back from that, we know that witchcraft and witches presented some sort of danger to the church. Um, women made up about 85% of those executed for crimes of witchcraft. The other 15%, um, they, I mean, they were men, they probably weren't necessarily being accused of witchcraft themselves, but of harboring witches. So what this sounds like to me is that these women were the original nasty women and the church couldn't control them. Mm-hmm. So they're like, oh, hey, you know what? We're just going to brand you witches and kill you. Because, mm-hmm. you know, prior to this Christianity nonsense, sorry, no offense to everybody out there, but this kind of nonsense, I mean, um, prior to this, uh, when you look at, we'll say, like Greek mythology and Egyptian mythology, like older religions and you're looking at their mythologies um witches were feared and respected now they just to throw it out there that there's a couple figures in greek mythology where the witches are very respected um they might have their own stories and tragedies but i would say up until this whole christianity thing like witches didn't necessarily mean you were gonna die they were typically folks who were um knowledgeable in a particular practice or did rituals within their communities so they you know they weren't just like women the church couldn't control so again it's kind of what we talked about in the beginning that the definition has changed over time when you're looking at like pre-christianity i would say that witches in general were not necessarily a threat and then christianity kind of took a foothold in europe at least um and then eventually america and then witches or people who were deemed to be witches uh, were seen as a threat and dealt with accordingly, apparently. Right. And, 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 you know, I mean, this is a quote from from those two, Kramer and Springer. Um, uh, No one does more harm to the Catholic Church than midwives. What? So this is taking direct action against people who were healers. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So here's the thing. Right. Uh, let me see. I'm if I can sorry. Find this who quick. do they think is gonna yank the baby out? <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I'd need a time machine to go back and yell at them. Oh my god, I'm mad. Now I'm heated. And and so here's the thing: is that for witches, um, typically they're considered the scientists of their time. Right. Right. They're passing down these knowledge bases. That have been tested and, you know, tried for years and generations. And so what they say is that, you know, kind of magic, quote unquote, was the science of the time. Um, And that was a direct uh, fight against the church. In in the church, you know, 
when people started actually training to become doctors, medical students would study Plato and Aristotle. They would study Christian theology. Um, but their medical theory was from ancient Rome, from Galen, um, who was a physician. And he was the one who came up with the idea of like complexions and temperaments. Um, and so, you know, there was also surgery, but that was not medicine. Surgery was like, ill gross, that's degrading, and, you know, you don't, Yeah, like... that wasn't, like, something you did. Now, there were other places in the world where surgery was happening relatively successfully at the time, mm -hmm. but I would love to spend a whole episode talking about that, so I'm not going to get into it right now. Teaser! So, you know, you you've got that sort of, like, science of the witchcraft because they're studying extensively the bones and the muscles you know that the the herbs and the drugs to use um versus right. the physicians that the the church sanctioned physicians um are talking about astrology and alchemy um so on one hand you've got this exceeding practicalness and on the other you've got the like no this is the right way and god says it so therefore, um, it must be right. Like in, in this, you know, um, physician Edward II, he had a bachelor's degree in theology and a doctorate in medicine from Oxford. Um, his prescription for a toothache was to write on the jaw of the patient in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Like, you know, <laughs> like. I don't understand the problem. I mean, it's almost like nothing has changed in the last 1000 years or so and uh people still don't want to believe science so i think the next time i instead of i going to the dentist when i have a cavity i'm just going to go to my closest catholic church and have them bless the toothache yeah <laughs> seems legit to me so here's where things get really fun right because because we're talking back in like you mean we're not already having fun no, it's going to get more fun <laughs> Because um, this is going to segue a little bit into great, like, great, great, I think great. kind of the first big thing that I'm, I want to hit on about witchcraft is the idea of Thanks. like herbal medicine and herbalism. Okay. So typically, you know, herbalism has a, I think, a growing amount of respect in the current scientific community. It's, you have to be careful, you know. Uh, but when we think about like the the medieval urban witch or... The city witch, the witch on the go. The medieval witches had things like painkillers. They had things to help with digestion, anti-inflammatories. Um, so one of those things would be ergo, um, which is used for the pain of labor. That's what, that's what they used it for. Um, at the same time, the church was going, hey, the pain of labor is the Lord's punishment for Eve's original sin. Boo. Just uh, sit with that for a while. Have fun. I feel like anybody with a uterus is going, fuck off. Truly. I mean, it makes me mad. Here's the thing, though, is that ergo, the, the derivatives from it are the, the main drugs that we use to hasten labor and aid in recovery from childbirth. Like, they, they got that right. Yes. You know, and, and this is from the, you know, 14th, 15th, 16th century. Belladonna um, is still used today as an antispasmodic. Um, that was, you know, to help stop uterine contractions when miscarriage came about. Oh. 
Right. Yeah. There's all these different things that, you know, women healers, these witches knew about and used and that got lost. Um, when we think about things like these, these witch hunts, what we need to think about is not only the life lost, but also the knowledge that's been lost. And we see this anytime we see genocide or war is that you lose people, you lose culture, you lose history, you lose information. Yeah, it's true. Um, That went real dark real fast. (laughs) From Halloween to genocide, coast to coast science, (laughs) here for you. Um, You know, as Logan mentioned, we're losing all this information. Any information that has survived that time period are probably things that were orally passed down between families Mm -hmm. um then you know when witch hunts ended i would say that those things probably emerged again as things that were used in certain communities um you'll see the field of ethnobotany is emerging which i think Mm -hmm. in a tangential way relates to logan's um points about herbalism and herbology Mm -hmm. and just to point out that um, I'm glad that that field is emerging because we're trying to acknowledge information that has already been known by certain people, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's like an in- an indigenous tribe or like just a community where like this has been known, but it's not actually like documented and written down um, or at least, you know, in a written way. It hasn't been documented by European white people. Yes. Well, yeah. I, I guess that is the way to look at it. I just mean even for, like, in those communities, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily, oh, white people haven't yet. Yeah, yeah, I know. Now I feel like I'm white-splaining. Anyway. Um, but, yeah, that that stuff is now... We're, there's more research that is... Europeans are finally branching out a little bit and actually listening to other peoples, which is great. Um, but they even screwed up their own people by burning them in witch hunts and losing the information that they did have. So um, it's great that we're leaning into... You can't let those women get out of No, nasty women. Um, So it's great that we're leaning into actually acknowledging that, you know, sometimes we need to look at history and information that was previously ignored Mm. to see what we're missing because there's so much we don't know. Yeah, I mean, to touch on that, like ethnographic storytelling is becoming much more important to the to conservation um as well as like like you mentioned right. ethnobotany um these sort of uh reliance or rather tapping into um these knowledge bases that need to be recognized as having value uh is something that's kind of finally starting to happen oh, for which sure. i think is really exciting because i think what we're going to see is that our knowledge like explode with all these things that it's like really wow like well no shit (laughs) some people have known about this for years if you had just listened yep um you know and not try to subdue oppress or kill them mm -hmm. i don't know wild idea but yeah so um to come circle back uh to uh herbalism um you know kind of trying to to tease apart the fact from the fiction right the um what works what doesn't actually work for for witchcraft um i think one of the the really important things right now is that like 
we're learning more and more every day about um, about these herbal treatments. But one of the things that we have to be really super careful about um, is drug interactions. Yep. Like, you know, there's some rather large number uh, of people in the United States that I'm, you know, over 50% of the people in the United States are on some sort of prescription medication. Right. Right. It, it's a lot of people. So one of the more well-known herbal remedies is willow bark, um, especially used in teas. Um, Heather, do you know what the use of willow bark is? I believe it is nature's aspirin. Yeah, so that's kind of the like uh, one that a lot of people go to. Um, I started diving into this a little bit more, but willow is sort of a natural source of aspirin. So, um, so looking at this, this study from, from 2011 by Vlaktoyanis, uh, Magora, and Krubasik, um, they were analyzing what is actually in willow bark. And um, willow only contains a very little bit of the um, prodrug salicin, which is kind of what's used, your, what your body uses um, in the aspirin. Oh. Um, and so there's actually not really enough in there to get the benefits of, of pain relief. So the amount of that in aspirin is like an order of magnitude higher. The interesting thing is that willow bark still provides pain relief like aspirin does, um, but they do it through different mechanisms. Oh, okay. Like so do they like, like cook it differently than how, like, is there... I, cook is maybe not the right word, but they, they process it differently so that it, like, does its thing. Well, so so aspirin, as we know it, is not derived from willow bark. It, right. It's made synthetically. So um, the, the thing about willow bark, though, is that the other chemicals that are in it help your body absorb it. Okay. And the other thing that it does is, like, it doesn't damage your your stomach lining. Um, and that's one of the things that like, you can't take aspirin long-term, you know, at high doses because it damages your stomach lining. Okay. The cool thing that we see in some cases is that the wild versions have some benefits that the, you know, FDA approved drugs don't. However, you know, we don't know what all the drug interactions are for various, for various, you know, herbal remedies. Right. Um, and that's really important to know that kind of thing because... Yeah, because so many yeah. people are on medications. Like, I mean, right. if, you know, raise your hand if you're on, I don't know, uh, birth control. Um, I, I raised my hand. I'm not. <laughs> I, I raised my hand and I am. So raise your hand if you're on some sort of like hormonal drug or an antidepressant or a heart medication or allergy pills or, or, or. Mm -hmm insert your medicine there's a good chance it could interact with something right we're, we're only just now starting to put the you know resources into doing this research but one of the problems with herbal remedies is that they aren't regulated the same way that like fda approved drugs right. are um so when you get something like ibuprofen ibuprofen is fda approved it will always be the same if you get 200 milligrams of ibuprofen 
that is exactly what is in that pill because that is what is legally required to be there. Versus, you know, if you are just making your own willow bark tea, well, how much are you going to put in? Um, how strong is the willow bark? Like, there's all these different factors that come into play. So, I guess the warning that I want to give people who use herbal medicine um, for themselves is just, like, check with your pharmacist. And I'm saying your pharmacist, not your doctor, because pharmacy school is insane they work so hard it like pharmacy school is so hard these people are they they know their stuff and they will be able to tell you whether or not the medications that you are on that are you know prescribed or that you know are over the counter are going to have any interactions that are known with with the herbs that you might be using so it's really important to check that so that you don't run the risk of you know, making your own medications less effective or um, causing a bad reaction of some sort. Charcoal is insanely popular right now. Uh, Uh, (laughs) Like, okay, I don't hate charcoal, but at the same time, I think that, like, everyone needs to calm the fuck down about it. I, I know that it's something that, you know you and I both need to be a bit concerned about. So yeah. So um, fun fact about charcoal is that it can fuck with the absorption of medication. So if you didn't know this, you're about to, I used to work at a veterinary hospital when I was a teen, a youth one might say. And um, one of the things I learned working there is that if a dog eats something it's not supposed to, and maybe you've run into this, um, they will sometimes pump the dog's stomach full of a charcoal supplement to help counteract whatever they ate that they Mm -hmm. weren't supposed to. And what the charcoal does is kind of neutralize most things that the dog could have eaten. Um, It will stop the absorption of whatever it has eaten into the system or at least slow it down so that they can then pump the stomach of the dog. Um, So the same thing happens with people. If you're eating like charcoal ice cream, charcoal flavored like i've seen so many things like dyed or flavored with charcoal if you're eating it and you're on a medication you need to be careful Mm -hmm. about the absorption rates um you gotta know what's going to affect you i would say that probably a face wash that i use once in a while is probably not going to fuck with me too much but if i were going to eat like a dark black meal that has been flavored and dyed with charcoal there's a good chance it's going to mess with my medication so um yeah, you just got to be careful with that charcoal stuff if you're on any medication. Yeah, uh, and the the reason that charcoal is so good at that um, is that it very readily binds with organics, which is often what um, a lot of the medications are. It's, you know, organic right. molecules. Um, it's also or relatively cheap and easy. organic molecules, so even if it's synthetic, yeah, mm-hmm. um, even if it's synthetic, it might structurally look like the organic molecule mm-hmm. so even if you're on a synthetic medicine it still could bind with it and likely yeah so. and yeah we're talking organic in the chemistry sense not organic in the environmental sense yeah so you know again this you know herbalism works sometimes and it doesn't so when we think about like uh you know herbs and medicine though the other thing that comes up when associated with witchcraft is like 
uh, brews and like potions and stuff. Right. Uh, and I I wanted to have a little bit of fun here. I thought this was incredibly cool. Um, if we think about Macbeth, you know, we, we revisit that beginning, you know. Eye of Newton, toe of frog, wool of batten, tongue of dog. Each of those things in that, you know, including adder's fork, blindworm sting, lizard's leg, howlet's wing, all of those are actually things. They're, they're not sitting there and plucking uh, an eye of newt and throwing that into a potion. No? Or grabbing the tongue of a frog. No, each of those is actually a plant. Those are... Um, old versions of common names for those ah. so i have newt is just mustard seed wow that could not be more extra right and toe of frog that's buttercup wool of bat holly leaves tongue of dog is hound's tongue Duh. wow did they really have to separate <laughs> that one out <laughs> and then you know you've got like your adder's fork which is an adder's tongue and blind worm um is actually kind of a snake a very, very small snake that was thought to be venomous. So, yeah, you're actually tossing one of those in there. Um, huh. But when when you can start to really kind of break down what things are going in witches, Bruce, you can start getting a better idea of what exactly um, is being used. So then you can start really piecing together, like, what each of these does. So mustard seed, for example, um, or mustard seed oil can be used for things like helping with the common cold or to help ease painful joints and muscles like rheumatism okay. and arthritis. It's also used to like cause vomiting. <coughs> um, it can relieve water retention if you're vomiting. <coughs> um, it increases urine production and it also increases your appetite. So what doesn't this um, do is what I'm hearing. What doesn't mustard seed do? Just eat a lot of mustard seed all the time. It'll be great. <laughs> Your life will be so much better. You'll just be peeing and um, vomiting all the time. <laughs> oh, oh, God. Gross. But yeah, so like depending on like who you ask, uh, there's different breakdowns of what kind of each thing is code for. Because um, you can talk about like when you ask for a certain animal, what type of plant is it? A sheep is usually dandelion, dog can be couch grass, lamb, lamb's lettuce, cat. You're using catnip. Duh. Um, Hi. What's with all the code names? They don't even make sense. Some of them do, though. Like, Kinda. I don't know. The, so one of the ideas is that these are you're, you're putting it into code or this would have been really easily understandable back then um, yeah. because this is something that would have been just common knowledge, you know. Right. Uh, or passed down, you know, verbally. Also, if something in like a brew calls for a sacrifice, I've been told that you shouldn't kill anything. Um, you should never kill anything. But especially if you're a witch, that you should instead bury an egg. And that counts as a sacrifice. Well, I like that. That's like a very mild. Uh, it's definitely more mild than I think what a lot of people think of when they hear the word sacrifice. Yeah, I think I feel like that's the case for a lot of things related to witchcraft. Oh, yeah. Once you really start digging into it, um, but <laughs> this is this is something that I love. Um, so, like different parts of the like human body um, can be associated with like different parts of plants. Right. So, like if it asks for like if a recipe asks for like 
the head of blah 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 it wants the flower okay if it wants the tooth it wants either like the leaf or the seed pod um the tongue would be a petal tail would be a stem (laughs) but the privates would be the seeds which i felt was very fitting (laughs) they really hit the nail on the head with that one i don't even think well they must they must have had an understanding to relate those two things together I mean, and I, I mean, I think that's a very reasonable thing to yeah. assume, you know. Yeah. So, huh. so yeah. All right. So, I mean, that I feel like is kind of the the big aspects of um, herbalism. Yeah. In which you know a lot of it is stuff that works, but be careful. Right. You know? Yeah. There's still a lot we don't it's, know. And yeah, it's important to make sure that you're keeping yourself safe. Right. But. Heather, I'm curious about some other stuff that's related to witches and witchcraft. I feel like brooms and flying is pretty popular. It is. So a couple things that I'm going to talk about tie in to alewives, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, I feel like I, as much as this is a science podcast for this particular episode, I got a little excited about the history behind some of this stuff and um logan helped Raimi in a little bit in terms of bringing <laughs> this, the science back to it because there's so much history around this uh especially as um things get studied more and documented more and we we're learning more that there's stuff that i'm like i didn't know this so um just an fyi With physics and the technology that we currently have, it is not physically possible for humans to fly either on their own or with the aid of a broom, unless... I've seen Harry Potter. I've seen Quidditch. It's real. Right, right. Uh, We're not talking HP, though. We're talking, like, that's, you know, we're muggles, unfortunately, so we can't fly. Lies. And if you're not a muggle, you're hiding it very well. I'm a Hufflepuff. I mean, I'm a Gryffindor, but, you know. Hmm. That explains I'm a lot. I'm still waiting for my fucking letter. Anyway, what I was going to say is there's a couple of reasons witches are associated with riding broomsticks. Live Science does a relating their articles and research back to actual papers. They talk about a little bit about... Um, how people dressed as witches are like carrying brooms around or besoms, which is like an besoms, which is like another word for brooms or like sweeping devices that are associated with magic. There's this plant that is sometimes called stinking nightshade. It's black henbane called Hyosacamus niger. And apparently henbane is rich in powerful alkaloids, which are like these The alkaloids are what makes plants poisonous, but what these alkaloids can do in this particular plant is cause hallucinations if it doesn't kill you first. (laughs) So according to some legend, witches apparently were using these herbs with psychoactive properties, so things like henbane, in their potions or quote unquote flying ointments. Apparently, some historical accounts suggest that witches applied these ointments to their nether regions. And what better applicator than a wooden staff? (laughs) Yes, so sexy. So, um, again, you know, you have the prosecutors writing the history of 
these witches which were killed for their um practices or you know just because they pissed someone off and their sexuality um and their sexuality and being a nasty woman so you know take this with a grain of salt to some mm -hmm. degree um okay so there's like this famous case lady alice keidler um ireland's earliest known accused witch this whole story is just fucking whack and she was condemned to death for using sorcery to kill her husband in 1324 uh she escaped and unfortunately her maid was burned at the stake in her stead so it's like oh well your boss isn't here but you are and you worked for her this is so really sorry, terrible <laughs> you're dying instead um but an english historian raphael uh hollandshed later recounted the case and i'm reading directly from live science in this case because they sum it up better than i ever could um, and described that some of the supposedly damning evidence from authorities against Lady Alice were in rifling the closet of the lady, they found a pipe of ointment wherewith she greased her staff upon which she ambled and galloped through thick and thin. Um, and similar accounts come from other manuscripts by people talking about apparently witches ride on certain days or nights where they anoint a staff and ride on it and yada yada so again we really don't know if these witches actually rode these hallucinogen laden wooden staffs but it's suggested that they did yeah i think it's interesting that like there's different ideas about like what the medievalists kind of thought back then um you know were they actually flying in their minds or i, I think one of my favorites right. is that like they're being supported by demons and devils that are holding them up and holding them aloft but i also love the fact that like we really associate brooms with what witches fly on um but that's like not the only thing that was used and by used, I mean I'm talking about the art. Um, so apparently early depictions from the 15th and 16th century um, show witches that are flying on just a wide range of stuff. Uh, and this list is great. Stools, cupboards, wardrobes, two-pronged cooking forks. Um, <laughs> what? But they would... <laughs> I need a flying stool. Uh, I mean, I, the, the two-pronged cooking fork is the one that got me, like... <laughs> I feel like that is not something you would want to crash. Definitely not. Um, I don't know how it's supporting <laughs> anybody's weight. Uh, They're tiny, but all right. Yeah. So, so the like, like you said, um, there, there seems to be a lot of like, one, no, they didn't, <laughs> and two, were these women like actually running around in the woods, um, pretending to fly? We <laughs> don't know. Yeah, we really don't know. Um, I think that it's safe. To say, to some degree, I'm going to make a wild guesstimate here based on what we've read, that they likely weren't trying to actually fly in the woods with the brooms. They were probably, if they were used in some sort of, like, ceremonial thing, like with modern witchcraft, um, this touches on the religious side a little bit, but brooms tend to be used to sweep out the negative energy in a ceremony, so maybe... They were doing something similar back in the day, some sort of like sacred movements that they needed a broom for. Um, 
But we don't know. We, we really just don't know. However, there is another side to this broom business that I'm going to get into. My new favorite topic, my new hobby um, slash life goals is to be an alewife. And I'm not talking about the fish. Um, so an alewife was a woman who brewed and sold beer or any sort of concoction, typically beer. Um, and apparently... They used brooms as a signal that the cauldrons were full and ready for sale. So they like brewed their beer and then they were like put the broom outside to be like, hey, it's for sale, you know. So brooms on doorways were called ale sticks. And some historians argue that the association between ale wives and witches doesn't track, though, because witches weren't yet associated with these hats that ale wives wore. So. Let's get to the hats real quick because this this kind of connects to it. Um, yeah. So witch hats are another thing that I – a rabbit hole that I happily dove down. And um, to stick with the alewives for the second, apparently these women who brewed and sold beer also wore distinctive headgear. Um, and the hats gained negative connotations because the brewing industry was dominated by men. Um who accused alewives of selling diluted or tainted beer. So basically Mm. these women were making great beers and they couldn't handle the competition. So they started to, um, you know, accuse them of stuff. So along with the knowledge of herbology, because if you're making beer or selling some kind of brewed beverage, you're going to know plants pretty well. Um, this goes back to our beer episode, mm-hmm. um, where we talked about some of the, like, earlier plants that were used, um, to flavor, uh, beer before, um, hops was popular. Yeah. So that, and that was Groot, um, which was an herb mixture used, uh, for the bittering and the flavoring process. And that was a lot of stuff that was really, you know, commonly also seen in, uh, witchcraft. So you had, like, sweet gale and mugwort and yarrow ground ivy whorehound and um kaluna heather were like the big ones right um and those are all things that you're gonna see um as popular herbs in witchcraft as well yeah um the hat that these women wore and if you google alewife hat um we'll try to put some up on the blog you'll see it's it's kind of similar to like a modern witch's hat in terms of like general shape it's more like what you think of with like pilgrims um so this could have led to the hat being associated with witchcraft. So again, angry men who couldn't control these women associating certain things with them. Um, also, <laughs> there's another side to this. Apparently, not just men might have been doing this, but other women. So the angry wives of men who came home drunk from buying brews from alewives plus a combination from the church saying that the conical hats looked like devil horns might have led to this connotation but on the same hats situation there's other historical uh thoughts or suggestions slash theories as to like what is going on here so uh there's your alewife witch connection in terms of broomsticks and hats we are not done with hats Mm -hmm. yet though so Um, there's some other connotations. So, uh, witches in earlier times weren't usually associated with hats, but they were like portrayed as bald or with really bad, gross hair. Mm -hmm. Um, but again, with the 
Europeans coming in hot with that prejudice. Here we go. Um, so in 1215, a Catholic council issued an edict that all Jews must wear identifying headgear. Um, a pointed cap known as a Juden hat became associated with black magic, Satan worship, etc., of which Jews were associated with. These hats apparently were initially worn by choice, but then enforced in some places in Europe. So, mm -hmm. uh, and this hat, the style of the hat resembled a Phrygian cap and both originated in pre-Islamic Persia. Um, so a similar hat was worn by Babylonian Jews and you can Google this, Jew, like Google like Jewish hat or Juden hat, Babylonian Jews, it should come up. Um, it, again, you can kind of see how uh, the modern day witch hat could have evolved from it, but it is different. Um, and similarly, uh, much later though, so that was 1215 where this was kind of emerging and sooner and uh, previous. In the mid-18th century, so the 1700s, um, there was a lot of anti-Quaker prejudice because people get pissed off by Quakers who are, like, super peaceful and pretty chill and, like, nonviolent. Apparently people aren't about that life. Um, so there was a lot of anti-Quaker prejudice. And even though Quaker hats were not pointed, as you'll, you know, you see that in the Pilgrim hats um, that you'll see, like, early um, United States, um, they still had the connotation. So basically, like, if you were some sort of uh, marginalized group, your hat turned into a witch's hat at some point, in some way, according to some historians. There is a lot of argument. I couldn't get a great, concise answer on where it evolved from because I, I think there's too many people discussing about where it came from. So I think it's a combination of possibilities, a rainbow of prejudice, if you will. Womp womp. Yeah. So let's let's like move on from my hat obsession. <laughs> and Logan, I think you had some stuff on crystals and minerals and like, you know, how effective they are and they're gonna line up my chakras and like <sighs> you know. Yeah. Like, it's just gonna fix all my problems. So here's the thing about the science of crystal healing. There is none. It, there's there's no scientific evidence to support that crystal healing is effective. Uh, what there is to support is that um, studies been, have been done that show that crystals are just as effective at healing as placebos. Um, so placebos, um, science is trick or treatment. All right, you. <laughs> It's true. Um, so, so scientifically, a placebo is a treatment that is given that should have no effect. Uh, people often associate it with things like uh, sugar pills. When testing um, uh, drug effects on studies, but I, I think what's really, really fun here um, is that you know when, when they when they did this study. Um, I'm referencing one in particular by Christopher French, who mm. um, heads up anomalistic psychology research at uh, the University of London. So a person, you know, if, if you use crystal treatments, you might feel better after using them. Um, but the thing is, science says that it really doesn't have anything to do with the crystals that are being used. 
what it has more to do with is the fact that um, you believe in the crystals. So what we've got going on here is uh, a couple of different things. Well, the crystals are bringing me like positive energy. So. Right. So if you believe in that, then it will work better. So what they did was they, they took a study and it was only 80 participants. And I'm saying only because that's relatively small. Very small. And they wanted them to meditate for five minutes. And they were either holding a real piece of crystal quartz or a fake crystal that they believed was real. Okay. AKA that would be the placebo. Right. And so before meditating, they talked to half of them and they kind of asked them, like, you know, make sure to take a notice of any of the effects that the crystal might have, uh, like tingling in the body, warmth in the hand, things like that. And so when they were done meditating, they then asked them questions um, about whether or not they felt effects. So what they found was that um, the effects that were reported by those who felt the fake crystals, the, the placebos, um, were no different than the effects reported by those who held the real crystals. A lot of people reported that they felt, you know, a warm sensation in the hand holding the crystal. Um, they might have felt calmer and overall, like, better sense of well-being. Um, so those that had been primed had been asked beforehand uh, to notice the effects, notice those effects stronger. Um, than those who hadn't been asked. But the strength of those effects didn't correlate at all with whether or not the crystal was real or fake. They also asked people whether or not they believed in the power of crystals and crystal healing ahead of time. And they, they you know, used this uh, questionnaire for that. And so people that already believed in the power of crystals were twice as likely as non-believers to report feeling effects from the crystal. So... There's a certain amount of um, this what's called the placebo effect going on here, and they're so again placebos are considered these like fake treatments. Uh, I, I was looking at these two different studies at at Harvard, and so the thing about placebos is that it it used to be considered kind of a, a sign of failure. If your drug treatment worked the same as the placebo, then it didn't really work. Right. Um, but what we're finding is that placebos oftentimes represent other uh, non-pharmacological mechanisms, right, that are there. So things that are not related to the drugs being used. Um, so we don't quite understand how placebos work. Um, and And so oftentimes... They could do things like it's very, very complex neurobiology here because um, they could be triggering certain neurotransmitters like endorphins and dopamine. And one of the things that they found is that uh, even when they tell somebody that they're taking a placebo, something called uh, an open label placebo, and this is new, new research, that people still feel the effects. Interesting. So it's kind of like that safety blanket idea for like a little kid of okay. like no you can't right. like nothing can be wrong you have your safety blanket with you you know this is helping you because you are doing something right right so when we look at crystal healing scientifically there's nothing about the crystals that are impacting the healing and this isn't really a mind over matter thing 
placebos work when they when they're not supposed to <laughs> moral of the story they did this study um dr ted kapuchik who's at uh, harvard medical school they were looking at ibs uh, irritable bowel syndrome yeah and half of the study volunteers that they had for this were told that they were getting what's called the open label placebo right and the other group wasn't getting anything and apparently in the group that got the placebo so got something but a something that wasn't like does not do anything right found that there was dramatic and significant improvements in the placebo group symptoms but they were getting what was essentially a quote-unquote sugar pill huh right so should have no impact on ibs yeah and this doesn't work on all medical situations um they were very specific in saying that like this won't lower your cholesterol it won't cure cancer right but it can do things for self-observed symptoms things like pain nausea fatigue things like that interesting and that's where crystal healing seems to be used the most so on one hand no there is no science to back up the fact that the crystals are doing anything However, the placebo is. Yeah, so placebos, you know, might not actually be metabolically or physiologically doing anything to you. Um, but neurologically, it seems like something's going on in your brain that's helping you out. So I know I kind of did like the Valley Girl uh, crystal mm-hmm. voice earlier because apparently it's a very like California, L.A. thing to be into crystals. But hey. If uh, if it's helping you, even if it's not like, you know, actually doing anything like the whole positive power of positive thinking thing, like, you know what? It's not hurting anybody. Makes you feel better. You think it's helping you. You do you. And, you know, whatever makes you feel good. You know, I am going to say this, though, for, for people who use uh, crystals. Yeah. Try to, like, ethically source your crystals. I didn't even realize that was a problem you yes. could have. Oh, it's a huge problem. Yeah. And like as, you know, somebody who who deals with conservation and community-based conservation, that was really um, kind of upsetting and disappointing to, to read about. So uh, if, if you're going to be buying crystals, try to ethically source them. And like, you know, there's no difference between a placebo and the real thing. Just buy some cheaper nicer um lab grown crystals man like they're good for the environment exactly um i was just gonna say you can find places that ethically source crystals Mm -hmm. um i have a couple friends that are into it and uh they i know at least mm, i think both of them actually make the effort to make sure that their stuff isn't coming from you know Uh, mining which a lot of the stuff does come from so Mm. if you can do your best to ethically source your stuff yeah so i feel like the big thing that we can really say about like witches and witchcraft and what is real and what isn't is that like we don't and won't be able to know uh everything there is about the history um of witches uh simply because of what has happened um but over the last you know several decades uh we've gotten better at researching these things there's also more trends in science to look into these um, homeopathic healing uh trends that are common in in witchcraft 
And so there's going to be more of a basis of knowledge for what works and ways to do it safely and effectively. Yeah, that is true. Um, We're learning more every day and there's a lot we still don't know about the universe in general and even like our own history, how our brains work. You know, there's all this stuff that we don't know that I think we touched on today with this topic. So just to wrap this up, um, the beginning of this episode, we were reciting a few lines from a work by Shakespeare. You might have heard of it called Macbeth. Um, It's a Scottish play. Uh, I was just going to like throw out some famous witch stuff, I guess, uh, for you to check out if you're into that sort of thing. You also already heard us mention Harry Potter. We're both big uh, fans. Mm. Potterheads, you might say. Um, Logan's a Hufflepuff. I am a Gryffindor puff. I don't know. I kind of, I feel like a combo now that I'm a little older, but um, <laughs> I was a Gryffindor when I was younger, for sure. Um, great book series. Uh, we talked about the Salem Witch Trials. There's a lot of history around that. We didn't get into the details of the witch trials in the U.S., but uh, you should definitely look into them. It's a lot of drama. Basically, a bunch of hysterical teenagers being assholes, but, you know, it's, you know, it's Halloween. Uh, my, one of my favorite movies is Hocus Pocus, and I just read a book called Circe. It's about um, a witch slash goddess from Greek mythology, and I listened to the audiobook, and it was absolutely amazing. So I imagine whether you read or listen to it, it's a great read. So yeah, there's some there's some famous witches and stuff, witchy stuff for you to go check out. Thanks for listening. We love you and we appreciate your ears and uh, you can find us anywhere podcasts can be heard. Uh, If you love the pod as much as we do, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help boost visibility and ratings. You can find us on Facebook at Coast to Coast Science, on Instagram at Coast to Coast Science, and Twitter as Coast to Coast Sci, S-C-I. And our website is ctcspodcast.wordpress.com. We are also on Patreon now at uh, www.patreon.com slash coast-to-coast-science. It's pretty brand spanking new. Um, There are three different donation tiers if you are interested. Uh, Any amount that you kick in will help. For one dollar, you know, just thank you so much for We the love support. you so much. Um, yeah, we really do. Um, and we'll like, you know, once a year, shout out to all the one dollar donation tier people. Um, Two dollar tier, you do get uh, access to one special episode per year. Um, this one, I think, for me, is really exciting because it, the episode will be a deep dive into research either by um, Heather, Janet, or myself. Um, where we'll take you from fieldwork to findings um, of some of the stuff that we've done. And if you can swing $5 a month at that donation tier, you will get a one-on-one live chat with either Heather or myself. And we're pretty cool people. We know a lot about science, and we love to talk about it. Um, And we'd love to, like, talk to you guys. Yeah, Yeah. if you're throwing 5 bucks at us, we'd love to chat. So uh, get at us. For today's podcast... Episode 15, The Science of Witchcraft, which is voiced by Logan Webster, Heather Costick, and special guest Chuck Moore, Heather's fiance. Uh, logo by Janet Gorman, sound mixing by Heather Costick and Logan Webster. Intro, outro music is Bongo Madness by Kinkas Moriera. And happy Halloween, and as always, keep sciencing.